This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number R10. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, Ask Kickers. Welcome to the last episode in this 10-part series on recovery. And this episode, I am solo. I have no interviews today, and it is a very personal one. I am going to talk to you about how I have gotten through the grief of losing my father without drinking, uh, being completely sober. But before I do that, a quick word from our amazing sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the Over It and On With It podcast hosted by my friend and colleague, Christine Hassler. You might remember her. She's been on this, this show twice before. She's a master life coach, spiritual psychologist who coaches people live on the air each week in her podcast. I think actually she puts out two podcasts a week. You get to hear and learn from real coaching sessions with someone who's probably going through a similar situation that you are in now or that you have been in the past. Christine also offers practical takeaways and insights in each and every episode. No topic is off limits. She talks about family struggles, romance, heartbreak, finding your purpose, career transitions, body image, anxiety, insecurities. Again, she talks about some juicy stuff that is real life happenings in your life. So first, head on over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from and search for Over It and On With It by Christine Hassler. And she also has some free gifts for you. Her stuff is amazing. She has this rad ebook. Uh, it's called Up Level Your Mind and Uplift Your Heart. Easy to digest daily practices or insights that will create positive changes in your life. And she has a six-step guide to intuitive decision-making. I get so many people that ask me, how do I learn to listen to my intuition? How do I know what the difference is between fear and my intuition? Christine has got you covered. Easy peasy to grab those two things. Just text the word Christine to 444-999 and she will hook you up. Okay, one more announcement. I am offering a free online workshop on self-love next week. So self-love is kind of a big mofo, right? And you hear me throwing around that term a lot with my guests and even on my solo episodes. So Amy Smith and I have teamed up and are teaching a live online workshop next week. It costs $0 for you to come. And I think you should be there. It's at theselflovevolution.com forward slash register to sign up. And here's what you're going to learn. Here's what you're going to walk away with. So number one, practical tools on how to manage your negative self-talk and how to actually start to feel good enough as you are without losing weight, without making more money, all that stuff we think we need to have before we are good enough, right? You'll get tools on how to forgive yourself for all that stuff you've been dragging around, which by the way, directly fuels your inner critic. So learning how to forgive yourself, so important. We're also going to be teaching about numbing and how to actually feel your feelings. There isn't one woman I talk to that listens to this podcast that doesn't struggle in this area. There's a free workbook that goes along with the online workshop. It'll be live. There's an opportunity to interact with us. It's going to be fun, and I would love for you to be there. 
theselfloverevolution.com forward slash register, and I will see you there. All right, ass kickers. As I mentioned, this is a very personal episode for me, and I, for the sake of complete transparency, have been procrastinating on it for weeks. I, originally, it was going to be the sixth episode <laughs> in the 10-part series. And then I was like, no, <laughs> not yet. And um, I have put it off. I, I can no longer put it off because I did promise myself I was going to do this because I think it's important. I think it's important for people to hear real-life struggles and stories about life and what happens because we all face shit that hits the fan, right? Problems with our kids, problems at work, problems in our partnerships with our friends, even, you know, strangers on the internet that piss us off. And it's sometimes hard to stay sober through those moments, whether they are these one moments that that, that happen or it's an accumulation of moments. But when big stuff happens, what do we do? And I I don't think I had ever heard anyone's story about – not that I had ever looked for it, but I had never heard anybody's story who was in recovery and had been sober who faced a big thing like this. And I always wondered how I would react. You know, when I first got sober, they tell us, just take your sobriety one day at a time. And that's hard. <laughs> Especially in my first probably year of sobriety, <clears throat> I did a lot of um, kind of future tripping and thinking like, oh, what what would happen if this happened? And what am I going to do when this happens? Am I going to – how am I going to stay sober through that? And it was actually something that crossed my mind. And like, you know, my parents are getting older. They were in their 30s when I was born. So, you know, I'm in my early 40s now. They're getting up there. And I knew that the day would come. And I always wondered how I would react and, you know, as everyone says, people deal with grief differently and you just kind of never know how it's going to happen. I think the one thing that does happen for everyone is that it fucking sucks. It just sucks. Like, I, I don't have better words. I'm better at writing than I am at explaining. But I I just – it was excruciating. And – before I get too far down the rabbit hole of that, let me just kind of tell you a little bit of a backstory about my dad and his journey with recovery himself. So if you haven't heard my story of my own recovery, I'm not going to dive too much into that. I actually was the first, it was the first episode of this series. So if you go to yourkickasslife.com forward slash R1, that's where I tell the story of my own sobriety. So Uh, My dad was a functional alcoholic, and he was a beer drinker, and I grew up going and getting him beers from the fridge. He'd say, honey, go get me a silver bullet. He drank Coors Light. And I mean, even sometimes if I hear, even if it's not even a beer, it's like a soda can opening, like the memories of that sound, and also what what has stayed with me over the years, even though I have not smelled this in so long... The smell of beer at the bottom of a paper bag trash can because we used to have – I don't know if anybody else grew up with these kind of trash cans. Back before we used to use plastic bags at the grocery stores, we had paper bags. And that's what my mom would um, put the paper bags underneath the sink in the kitchen. And the smell in the morning. And it wasn't a repulsive smell. It was just 
a smell that I remember from my childhood. And I never thought anything of it. My dad was never drunk in front of me that I remember. He um, never yelled whether he was drinking or whether he wasn't. My father was was extremely passive and kind. So many people when he died told me, your dad was such a nice guy. And he really, really was. Like he genuinely was just a really nice guy. And so he just was never... If he was ever drunk in front of me, I didn't notice. And maybe he was a happy drunk. Maybe he was a great drunk. According to my mother, he never he never screamed and yelled and was never that kind of an alcoholic. Um, he always you know, and by functional alcoholic, he always held down a job. He always supported us really well. We had a great life. We really had a great life. I thought everyone's dad drank that much beer. You know, when I started to probably notice it. I never really noticed it, I don't think, until I was well into my high school years. But when he got sober and I asked him, I'm like, how much were you actually drinking? And he said, some nights I'd drink a whole 12-pack, which I'm like, holy shit. Like, I would have never known that. And and again, like, I thought that was normal, that just – that's what people's dads did. It was never a problem until (laughs) – my senior year of high school, well, actually, I, I graduated from high school. <clears throat> I was, I think, like any teenager, very active in my social life. I was hardly ever home. I had a boyfriend all throughout high school, which I was given a lot of freedom. I was an only child. I have I have half siblings, and they were uh, – I didn't grow up with any of them. So I was essentially an only child growing up. And – my in retrospect what i know was happening when i was in high school was that my parents marriage was not doing well and they were having their own issues and a side effect was from that was letting me kind of run loose as a teenager it was great i didn't i had like a 1 1 a.m. curfew <laughs> i could go to my boyfriend's house as much as i wanted it just i was I was absent, really. And, you know, that's when things kind of all started to fall apart. So my mom left my dad the summer after I graduated high school. I think it was around June or July. It, it must have been like right after I graduated high school. And then um, she was gone. And it was just me and my dad, which was very strange. But again, I had I had a boyfriend at the time. Um, we'd been together for over a year. And that was actually the person that ended up being my, my first husband. And I was busy, you know, I just, I kind of like, I'm like, okay, this sucks. You know, my parents are getting divorced, but I just pushed that all, I pushed it all away and pushed it all down. So November 3rd of that year, November 3rd. So that would have been 1993. My dad, I was home and probably getting ready to go out with my friends. And my dad opened a beer as he does and held it up and said to me, this is my last beer. I'm checking myself into treatment tomorrow. And I was like, for what? (laughs) It didn't make any sense to me. And he's like, I'm going to go to rehab um, for 30 days at an inpatient treatment center. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. But I think at the same time, I didn't really care. I was just like, get me out of here. This is 
you know, we didn't, we, we weren't a family that talked about the hard stuff. So I think I just probably ran out the door and he did, and he was gone. And so was my mom. (laughs) It was really weird. I was 18. I was 18 years old. And, uh, I, that whole time of my life is a little bit foggy. I know they left, they must have left me money or something. I don't remember if I had a job. Like I was not one of those kids who was pushed into working and, you know, being responsible. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't that girl. I, I wish I would have a little bit been more, but I, I didn't. It, it wasn't, um, it wasn't impressed upon me to do that. So I don't even remember how I, I was spending a lot of time over at my boyfriend's house. His family became my family and they took me in. Thank God. I don't know what I would have done without them. And I essentially was sort of absorbed into their family while my family went through this hard time. So we got invited to family day. If you have ever been to rehab or if you ever have been a family member of someone who's been to rehab, you know what this is. Sometimes it's family week, depending on how long the person is there. And what it looked like for us is that we got invited. It was like an evening, I think, to do like this group therapy thing. And my mom came and my sister. So my father was, is this particular sister I'm talking about, her stepfather. And the three of us piled in my mom's Oldsmobile and we drove to this treatment center and I remember, I remember what I was wearing, you guys, like the, it is stuck in my memory so vividly. So there I am, 18 years old, chip on my shoulder, don't know why we're here, don't know why my dad is in rehab because still at, at this point in time, I did not think that my dad was an alcoholic. I, I didn't. Neither did my mom. And so we go here and he's showing us around. And I remember like seeing his room that he like shared with this other guy in these like twin beds. And it was so surreal. It was so surreal. Like this was not my life. You know, this was not my life. I'm like, can we just go back to where we were like, you know, with our house and just back to normal life. It was, it was fucked up. It was fucked up. And I didn't know how to put it into words. And so then we go into like this circle and we're sitting in this circle and, um, they're going, you know, I had never been to a recovery meeting or anything like this. I'd never seen it on TV. I didn't know anyone who had ever been to one. I didn't, I hadn't heard anyone talk about it ever before in my life. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. So they're going around the circle of people And we were kind of towards the end and there was another girl there who was my age. And I remember making eye contact with her because, you know, we do that. And she was there with her mom and they got to them and her mom was an addict. And I want to say that she did crystal meth or something like that. And of course, immediately I'm like, we do not belong here with y'all druggies. You know, it's like we – I'm sitting in this place of like – such uncomfortableness and just total denial of what is going, what is happening to my family. Like it it was like falling apart before my eyes and I did not know what to do. I just wanted to get out of there. So they're coming around the circle 
And my dad is on my lap, my right, and they're coming around. And so he was going to talk before me. So they get to him and he breaks down and starts crying. I had only, up until then, in all of the 18 years I had been alive, I had seen my father cry one other time. And that was when their friend had committed suicide. And it was awful. And I was probably 10, 9 or 10 at the time. And I had walked into the room when he was telling my mom. And I don't even think that he knew that I was watching them and listening to them. And he told her about their friend that had killed herself and that and seeing him break down as a child was terrifying and heartbreaking. I mean, you guys know, like when to see your parents cry, to see your father cry. Oy. So that was the only other time I had ever seen my father cry. <clears throat> and so he's sitting next to me, like we are literally elbow to elbow, and he is breaking down, like head in his hands, sobbing. And I wanted to die. Like, I just was like, <laughs> we, this is an emergency. Like we have to get out of here. Like everything in my body was like, get out, get out, run away. And I had to sit through it. I sat through it and, um, they got to me and I was at that time extremely stoic. That's what I had learned how to be. My weapon of choice was being strong um, it was all I ever knew and it was, it was inadvertently what I was taught. And so I sat, I sat there trying my damnedest to, um, you know, be strong and not cry. And I can't remember, I think I probably started to talk and then just broke down. And I, I was like waving for them to like, you know, pass, I'm good. And they waited for me to stop crying. It was probably at that moment, like one of the most uncomfortable moments of my life, them waiting, this group of strangers and my parents and my sister waiting for me to stop crying. And I just said, you know, I'm, I'm here with my dad. <clears throat> and, um, I said, I don't understand why we're here. I can't believe I said this out loud, like to the group leader, I said, I don't know why we're here. My dad's not an alcoholic. I don't, I don't, I basically was telling her, like, we don't belong here. <laughs> We're not like the others. And she said to me, your father is what we call a functional alcoholic. And I remember hating this woman, hating her. Who the fuck are you to tell me what my father is or isn't? You've known him for, what, a few weeks? Like, I've known him my entire life. My father is not an alcoholic. Do you know what an alcoholic is? Because I do, and he's not it. And I was, <clears throat> I was furious. I was furious and scared, probably more scared than I had ever been in my entire life. And uh, that was that. And that was my experience with that. He then, it was a disaster. <laughs> my mom and my sister there, he, um, he did his, his time there. And he then went to a halfway house, which I didn't, I didn't know about. I, I didn't know that part. And my, my brother actually reminded me of it and told me that he had helped him move. And I didn't, I wasn't there. And he stayed with Alcoholics Anonymous for a long time. And when he died, he had 20, 23 years, I think 23 years. I think he died right before his 23rd anniversary of sobriety. It's a long time to be sober and watching him 
do that. You know, I, I went and saw him for when he was getting various chips and his different milestones in recovery with the program. And it just, it helped him tremendously. Um, I don't know if it changed his life. I would like to say with confidence that, that it did. I don't know if it did. I don't know. But at any rate, he, he was sober for a long time and I am extremely proud of him for that. And yeah, so, so that was it. I just, I know that AA was, was a big part of his life. So fast forward all those years, he, um, I, I used to, I'm from San Diego and that's where he lived. And, um, we moved to North Carolina a couple of years ago. So we had gone on a family vacation, me and my husband and my kids. And right before we left, my stepmother had texted me that he was really ill. He was in the hospital getting blood transfusions. They weren't sure what was wrong, but they were doing tests. And I almost didn't go on this family vacation. She told me to go anyway. So I did. And when we came back, um, I believe they were still trying to figure out what was wrong. It was confirmed that he had a rare form of leukemia. I cannot for life me remember the name of it right now, but it is it is a a form of leukemia that essentially turns your bone marrow into scar tissue over time. And it is terminal. And it depends, people's life expectancy when they are diagnosed with it depends on several factors, their age, their health. Also, I believe, I, I don't know this for sure, but I believe it also really depends on how how much it's progressed at that point. So I think that my, typically people have about a year when they get diagnosed. I think that he had it for a long time. And either didn't complain because um, my stepmother was also having some health issues and uh, he maybe he just didn't want to be that burden or maybe he wasn't in a lot of physical pain. I, I don't know what the case is. But at any rate, when we got back from our vacation, I almost immediately went out there to see him. I was there from October 6th through October 10th. So I was there for four days. And I was shocked at his appearance. I had just seen him in June and he was totally fine. My brother and sister had seen him on July 30th for his birthday and he drove. He was fine. He was normal. I was floored at how much different he looked. So the hospice people had told us that it would – how much longer he had would really depend on how fast he was deteriorating. And they told me that – I think the day I left and I said, he's deteriorated in four days since I have been here. I don't think he has that much longer because the doctor said he has maybe six months. And I was like, there's no way he has six months. He's not going to – he's not going to be here at Christmas time. And – so I went home on the 10th and I told the hospice people, he hadn't even gone to hospice yet. They had just come to see him, but I told them, I want to be there when he goes. So can you make sure and call me and let me know? And they said, yes. And so they called me on the 15th. So I was home for a week, you know, like a Monday through a Friday. And they called me and said, you need to come now. So I got on a plane the next day, went 
all the way back to the other coast. Uh, I was there on the, I arrived on the 15th and he died the next day on the 16th. I am going to record a separate podcast in, or podcast episode where I go through that story because it's interesting, um, but not today. This is about how I didn't drink through all of this. So even like, you know, during like when he was sick and we found out he was terminal, I was kind of like, I think like for the first part of it, I I just, I was sort of in on like autopilot, just sort of figuring out logistics of how am I going to, which is easier for me to deal with. Like, give me something to be productive about, give me logistics and I can, I can deal with this. It takes the emotion out. I think is what I'm trying to say. So it was, you know, flights and childcare and my clients and podcast episodes and like figuring out all of these things that need to happen in order for me to travel coast to coast and, and, um, and deal with that, you know, and keeping people in the loop and things like that. So when he died, though, it was sort of, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it kind of all fell apart and I had sort of braced myself for it. I think that there's definitely when there's the opportunity for over-identification when you work in personal development, or even if you're just a big fan of it, if you, if you dabble in this work, uh, over-identification is, is a, a, a term used for people who overthink things and sort of like try to label everything. Well, it's like, am I doing this? Am I doing this? And like, you know, you want to call what you're doing something. <laughs> so that can tend to happen. And I, I was sort of almost like too mindful of what was happening. And then that got to just be like too difficult. So I, so I gave up. But one of, one of the things I have struggled with in my own personal development journey is surrender. Um, I got it tattooed on my arm. I will, I will link to a picture of that in the show notes. I hate surrender some days. I have coped most of my life by not surrendering, by controlling, by powering through, by planning, um, anticipating, bracing myself, <laughs> micromanaging. That is what, I mean, that, that's like my to-do list <laughs> right there. That's how I coped. I wanted some kind of certainty in my life. And I know I'm not the only one. We are humans. We do not like uncertainty. It makes us extremely uncomfortable and it makes us scared. And I didn't want any part of that. So it's funny almost and ironic that I get into this work on vulnerability and, and all of these things. So surrender, I felt like I had to surrender in recovery. But the way that I looked at it was like a kind of like a life happens, oh, traffic, you know, things like that. But this has been the first time I've really had to surrender. Like I really can't power through this. And I I tried. I I felt almost paralyzed. Like there were there were times I remember like right when it happened. And by the way, I was under contract. Um, I had finished about seventy five percent of my second book, my the manuscript. So my deadline was December thirty first. 
I had signed a contract and got paid lots of money and they were expecting their manuscript. And I could not for the life of me sit down and write about the topics that I was supposed to write about. It felt irrelevant to me. It felt completely irrelevant and almost trite. And I was writing, but I was writing these kind of dark and tragic poems about his death and my feelings around it. It was all I could write. And I would write and write and write and cry. And sometimes I wouldn't even remember writing things. Like it was how I was grieving and how I was coping. And so I had to, I got an extension on my, um, my manuscript. But my point was that I felt like I was paralyzed. Like I have been able to power through pretty much everything in my life. When things get hard, I can still be the one people call on to get shit done. I am an overfunctioner, and it's just what I know. And this was the first time I was found myself like there were days where I would sit in my dining room, like my kids had gone to school, my husband was at work, and I was just sitting there listening to the clock tick. And it was those moments where quiet and stillness would come in. I think where I want to say like where I'd get in the most trouble, but I don't think that that's actually true. I think that the scared part of me wants to say that, but I think that it was those moments is where the grief would come in. And some days in those moments of sitting at my dining room table, I felt like it was strangling me. And I think there was only one time where I thought about drinking and it, let me, let me try to explain this. What happened was, and it was this really strange moment where I wasn't even thinking about my dad. I didn't hear a song or I didn't like, it wasn't any of that. I was unloading the dishwasher. No, I was, I was loading the dishwasher. doesn't matter, but I was doing just this mundane task of loading, of putting um, dishes in the dishwasher. And it just came into my mind about drinking. And that's the thing with recovery. Sometimes I think that the weird thing about it, and I've talked to a lot of people in recovery who have said this, there are times when it isn't that something great happens and we want to celebrate with a glass of champagne or we got a a letter home from school that our kid is really struggling. And so we want to drink, like it can be the most mundane, inconsequential moment. And the thought could come in. And so I thought about drinking and I thought this would be so much easier <laughs> if I could drink, if it, it would just, like, I just wanted a break from the sadness. I wanted, I wanted a break from it. I wanted to mentally check out. I wanted it to go away. I wanted to change how I felt. Isn't that why we drink? Isn't that the bottom line of it? We want to change the way we feel. And all this surrendering bullshit (laughs) was really making me feel all the feels. And I was tired. And that's a very dangerous place to be now that I say all that out loud. So I thought to myself that it would be so much easier to just drink during this time. 
And my next thought, thank God, was, you know, I'm not going to drink. And the only reason I'm not going to drink is because I can't, not because I don't want to. And that, for some reason, that thought of, I, I don't know what it was about that thought. I crumbled and I fell to the floor in my kitchen crying so hard that I couldn't breathe. And I cried and cried and thought about how fucking ironic it would be if I drank over my father's death, the man who had almost 23 years of sobriety, the man who got sober and showed me what recovery could look like, how ironic it would be if I drank because I couldn't handle the grief and I couldn't feel my feelings around it. And as I was crying on the kitchen floor, I saw my phone on the counter and it was kind of, the corner of it was like kind of hanging over the edge of the counter. And I thought to myself, Andrea, if you don't call or text someone in the next five minutes, you are going to get yourself in trouble. And I don't know if that was like an angel speaking to me or what, but I knew that I couldn't sit there in all of my grief and sorrow and brokenness um, and not reach out for help. And of course, the thought of, oh my God, nobody wants to hear this story. Nobody wants to hear from me. You know, that's that's the addict in me who wants me to drink, who who is scared and afraid and small and wants to hide. And again, a very dangerous place for me to be. So I got myself together and picked up my phone. I texted my friend Laura and I called my friend Courtney and they talked me off the ledge and they were there and they responded. You know, they didn't come screeching into the driveway in their cars, but they just responded and said, I hear you and I see your pain. There's nothing they could have said in that moment that could have fixed my pain. There's nothing they could have done that would have taken away the feelings I was feeling. But just knowing that someone could sit with me in my pain and say, I see you and I hear you. That was it. And then I picked myself up and finished loading the dishwasher. And that's, that's surrender, you know, like it means like, to me, surrender means not resisting. Resisting would be numbing. Numbing, numbing is, is resisting. It's resisting the feelings that are coming up. Not talking to anyone about your pain is resisting. Believing you need to get over it in a certain amount of time is resisting. Resisting is the opposite of surrendering. And the funny part also is that I thought that surrender would make this easier. I was like, all right, surrender, okay, I can try and I'm going to play by the rules. Like I thought there was like grief rules 
And I, yeah, that's like what I thought, which I know is like hysterical, right? I thought it would make things easier. And it, and by easier, I mean like less painful. And it didn't. It makes, I think what it does, maybe it does make it a little bit easier. It doesn't make the feelings go away, but it's sort of like, it's like liquid plumber. (laughs) I don't have a better analogy, but it just, it just sort of like, like unclogs the muck so you can just flow through it and get through it. And like going through that pipe fucking sucks. But if you don't, if you let it be clogged and you just let it sit there, it doesn't go anywhere. And then it overflows and the sink overflows and there's crap everywhere and you're lashing out at people and blaming people and road raging and having insomnia and panic attacks. And that's resistance. And I would much rather just like go through the sucky pipe and just do it. And that's how it's been. Yeah, there has been some resistance. Um, I have fallen back on some, I wouldn't say old behaviors, but at the day that I found out that he was terminal and I knew I was going to be going out there, I drove to the mall and I spent entirely too much money on a dress and shoes for his funeral because I would be damned if I didn't have time to do that. Uh, and didn't have the right dress for my father's funeral. And I felt better for like five minutes. And I completely acknowledged that I was numbing out with shopping. And I just did that one thing. And I was like, it's okay, Andrea. You're allowed You're allowed to spend too much money on a dress and shoes for your dad's funeral. But that's enough. That's enough. And um, yeah, what I've learned about all of this, and, and it may sound really simple, it's just feeling the feelings instead of numbing them out with booze. It's And it's okay to think about doing the thing that you want to do, that you want to drink, that you want to shop, that you want to eat, but just crying instead. Like really, really crying if you need to, if that's what's coming up. And talking about it to the people you trust and love, those people that are a soft place to land for you. And one of my favorite quotes is by Desmond Tutu. He says, my humanity is bound up in yours for we can only be human together. And I have found that to be so incredibly true, especially since I got sober and especially since this has happened with my dad and the women that have reached out to me who have also lost their fathers, there's something about, you know, there's something about another alcoholic. There's something about if, you know, if, if, whether you identify with that word or not, I'm just using it for simplicity, but talking to somebody else who gets it, who understands, I mean, people can still be empathetic. You know, if your partner isn't an alcoholic or an addict or whatever, and like they can still be empathetic, but there's something about talking to another person who totally gets where you have been. And again, people can still be empathetic who have not lost a parent or have not lost someone close to them. But there is something about talking to another woman who has lost her dad. And I am so incredibly grateful to the women that have reached out to me 
who have done that. And a few of you have emailed me and I haven't responded yet. It's just, I'm, I'm getting to it. But there's something that connects us, I think. So before I wrap it up, I wanted to talk about just sort of some of the feelings that have have come up and how I've kind of dealt with it. And it's interesting, I think maybe in passing, I, I knew that this would happen. I don't remember, but I don't think I've ever been in a situation, or at least that I remember, where so many different feelings are kind of coming at me all at once. And it's like this big, like, stew pot full of fucking feelings. So obviously I knew, you know, like when my dad dies, it's going to be really sad and I'm going to have grief and sorrow. I think I didn't realize that there was also going to be anger. There was also going to be regret. There was going to be guilt. There was going to be resentment, annoyance and irritation. Like I was so annoyed with everyone, everyone. If you were breathing around me, I was irritated with you. And it was just in like those first couple, first couple of weeks for me where I was really, really raw. When I came home from being gone, I was, and then I was out there for two weeks because his funeral wasn't for two weeks and it didn't make any sense for me to fly all the way home and fly back. And it was a logistics thing. But when I came home, my best friend Amy and her husband were at my house. They were house guests, which was a trip that they had planned for many, many months before that. And my mom was also there because she had been taking care of my, helping my husband take care of my kids while I was gone. So I had house guests. <laughs> I came home. It was not fun. <laughs> and these are the people that I love the most in the world, that, that are my favorite people in the world. And all I wanted to do was just be in my bedroom all by myself. I didn't I didn't want anyone around me. It was those first couple of weeks, like first two or three weeks were just brutal. And it was sort of like this ping pong and pendulum swinging of all these different feelings. And I, they were kind of coming at me like in stereo from all these different angles. And, and it, I won't lie. It was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. And I had to, be in it. I know it's like, well, isn't that obvious? Like, yeah, I had to be in it. And it was, it was, again, it was the first time I had ever experienced all of that without checking out, without numbing out. And so much of this, and I've, I've been kind of talking about this a lot lately, that, and the reason I talk about it is because it's, it's been so profound in my life. And that is the concept of self-trust, of knowing that these feelings are just feelings and that I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. Me walking through this sober is okay. It, it was hard for me to grasp at first, like that this is, this is good for me. It's going to help me grow. It's going to make me stronger. I was like, fuck you and your fucking growth opportunities. I'm, I am I am so not in that place. Like, I am not playing personal development right now. Like I cannot. I, 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 no. I wanted to punch someone who said that to me. Very, I don't think hardly anybody said it to me. I think maybe I was really clear about that. But uh, I was I was confident like like yeah, 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 I'll get there. Like I know, I know. Just don't. I'm not ready for it. And I think that you need to give yourself that space. And I gave myself full permission to not be in that space of 
of seeing the gift in it all. So you've got to be kidding me. So I was giving myself permission to just be in whatever I wanted to be. Self-trust, just knowing that I was I was going to come out of it okay. And that if I needed to go in the shower or in my bed, those are probably my two favorite places to cry, or the kitchen floor, I guess, sometimes. I have to let it all out and that it's going to be okay. Like those kind of raw emotions used to scare the shit out of me. And now I just, like it is what it is. It's like, you know, what if we looked at it, it's like a sneeze. Like, well, you can't hold that in. I guess you can, but when you do that, sometimes you fart and that's, you know, something's coming out, right? So what if you just feel your feelings? I know, crazy concept. And what's also really, really helped me is writing through it. Like I mentioned, I wrote some pretty, some, some pretty sad stuff. Uh, I'll share one of them with you in the show notes if you want to click over there. And I'll put a couple pictures of me and my dad and um, and one of the one of the pieces that I wrote. It was those first few weeks that I wrote a lot and just I had to like I I had no other way of making sense of it. It's how I made sense of something that was, that felt senseless to me. And it's not like he was murdered or, you know, like had a violent end to his death. He was 80. He lived a long life, but still it was like this little girl part of me, like could not make sense of this, that my father was gone. And in order for me to not run away from the feelings, in order for me to run towards them, I guess, writing helped. Also, talking through it with people, again, that were, that I trusted enough. And also what I had to do, I had to back out of some responsibilities. I had to, I had, I had volunteered for something at my kid's school that I had to back out of, which was really, really hard for me. I had to ask for an extension from my editor. Uh, I had to just be realistic about what I could and could not take on because I knew my intuition said, if you try to take on all of the things that are, you know, in, in my real life that I had taken on before he got sick, that was another small avenue to drive me to drink. And my sobriety was more important than volunteering once a month at my kid's school. You know, it's like I just it was it was just more important. I had to think about the long run. So that's about it. I hope that was helpful for some of you who have dealt with grief or are facing grief or will face grief. I think too, if you are someone who has been through a really hard time, whether you lost someone or you got a divorce or whatever it is, and you drank through it, it's interesting to me how it doesn't go away. When I got sober in 2011, the grief of my divorce that happened in 2006 exploded in my face. And I was not expecting that. I thought that I had buried that successfully. I heard somewhere a long time ago, we can't bury our feelings and we can't bury our feelings alive and expect them to die. And essentially, because I drank through my divorce and I was a love addict during that time, that's what I did. I buried my feelings alive and they didn't die. And I got sober and there they were. And uh, 
everything that I've told you that I did to cope sober through the grief of losing my father, I had to go back and do for that. And it fucking sucked. But I didn't have any other choice. It's like, what was my other choice? To, to drink again? I sure as shit wasn't going to do that. And that's all I got. So this has been cathartic for me. I hope it was helpful for you. Um, let me know if it was. I would appreciate that. You don't have to write me a big, long email. You can if you want. I read them. And um, I just appreciate all of you being here. I appreciate all of your support and your love and energy that you send. And we will do another 10 episodes. I don't know when they're coming, but they're coming sometime in 2017. If you're signed up for to get my updates, then you will know when they're coming. And you can just go to my website and sign up for updates. And that's all I got for you. So until next time, ass kickers, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.